You're listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This is the seventh and final episode of our mini-series, Resilience in the Face of Adversity, where we ask how the coronavirus health crisis reveals insights about the values that bind us together. This episode features Ashraf Rishti in conversation with Jessica Bulduk and Thomas Snow from the 4Rs Youth Movement, and Carrington Christmas, who works with the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centres. We talk together about the concept of resilience in the context of this health crisis, and how spirituality and service find expression in their lives and work to engage youth in processes aimed at peace and reconciliation here in Canada and globally. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of this podcast miniseries uh, called Resilience in the Face of Adversity. Um, I wondered if we could just go around and hear from everybody about who you are and what you do, uh, starting with Thomas. I'm Boastit. My name is Thomas Snow. My Nakoda name is Wasuida, and I come from the Stony Nakoda Nation in Alberta. And I'm currently working with 4Rs as their equity educator. And I'm working out of Winchispa, which I think is known as Calgary. And my hometown is Minithni, which is also known as Morley. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Thomas. And Carrington. Up Jalasi and in the Lavisi, Carrington. So my name is Carrington Christmas. Um, my grandparents are Black Scotian and Mi'kmaq um, on my father's side and German on my mother's side. Um, they did not grow up in community. They grew up in Spring Hill and Digby. Um, I was born and raised in Mississauga. Uh, currently, I work in um, Indigenous education um, and also very passionate about youth advocacy um, and community development and just really empowering youth voices. I'm so happy to be here. Hulaliuk. Thank you. And Jessica Polduk. Um, Ani Bojo. Um, my name is Jess. Uh, I am calling in from Bawatin, which uh, is also known as Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, and that's a beautiful place in northern Ontario, uh, nestled between Lake Superior and Lake Huron. Um, I am Anishinaabe Ojibwe, French and Irish. So a real mixed blessing, as an elder once told me. Um, And the work that I do is, I think is really focused around like, how do we convene people in a different kind of conversation that actually transforms the relationships that we have with one another. And um, I mean, more commonly, uh, (laughs) the work that I do is in reconciliation. Um, But it's more than that. It's, It's about relationships. It's about reparations, it's about uh, decolonization and systems change. Um, And I work alongside Thomas, actually. So we're really stacking the deck in terms of the 4Rs crew here on this podcast, but really grateful to be here um, and really grateful because of the relationship that I've had with you, Asha, for for forever Um, uh, and the kinds of opportunities that come my way because of those things. So miigwech. And we're grateful to have you on the show. So the first um, question that I wanted to ask just to sort of start our conversation rolling is the podcast is titled Resilience in the Face of Adversity. And so I just wondered if we could unpack a little bit this term resilience 
and explore sort of what does it mean to each of us and, and what can we kind of uh, contribute to a conversation about resilience in the face of adversity by starting with this concept. Thomas, do you want to take us off again? Sure, Ashraf. I'm, I'm happy to. So I, I've been thinking about this concept of resilience and, and how I would translate it into my my Nakota Sioux language. English is my, my second language. Um, I learned it as a child. And in community, it was all Nakota Sioux. Uh, and still remains that way, uh, although that is changing. And I think resilience was something that I grew up witnessing. And so it definitely carried an action component of it. But I, I never heard it being spoken in English. I never heard people saying resilience. Uh, I heard things like pie ginazimi, which is to, to stand back up, to kind of lift yourself back up. And really, when I think of resilience, I really do associate it with that, that teaching. Uh, and, and that's because of the fact that no matter what challenges I saw my community members, my family, uh, whatever I saw them going through, they would always stand back up. And, and there was always this determination to, to move forward. That being said, I, I also see resilience in the context of uh, genocide and this ongoing oppression and the fact that resilience does not, the term resilience should not and does not excuse genocide by the Canadian government or the ongoing oppression that Indigenous peoples face, and, and in no way should it be kind of thrown around, um, you know, as it benefits those oppressors. Uh, you know, it is something that is taught within our communities in, in a sense of understanding, love, and respect. That, that's how I define it, how I, my relationship with resilience, is that resilience is deep within and underlies the values of our teachings, our culture, our ceremonies. Our, cer our ceremonies were meant to build our nari, or as uh, I think the translation in English is our spirit and our spiritual strength and capacity. And again, that is you know some, a component of resilience. And so I think people mistake resilience as something separate from us when actually it's at the foundation of everything that we do. It's one small component of it. So that would be kind of my first thoughts around this topic of resilience and, and that word itself. Uh, to me, when I think about, um, you know, resilience in the face of adversity, I also connect it to like my own story and my own journey around um, claiming my own identity as an Indigenous woman um, and, and thinking about how uh, my identity was projected onto me by um, what has happened to Indigenous people um, and in the same way, I think about how, I guess, the broader narrative around Indigenous peoples and, and the term resilience is also projected on um, this idea of resilience as, as being able to, uh, to move through and beyond um, some of the, the things that Thomas was talking about when he was talking about genocide. So there is like a time in my life where, where I started to shift this, this notion of identity from beyond what people were saying um, I was to sort of discovering that for myself. Um, and so, so I think about resilience as a journey towards sort of something that is within, 
Um, and I really heard that when, with, with what Thomas was talking about when he was talking about resilience too as well. Um, and from an Anishinaabe worldview, one of the concepts that comes to mind to me is really this concept of Minobimatsuin, which is the good life. Um, and and it, it, it also is sort of a pathway for us to think about how do we love ourselves? How do we love our spirits? You know, I think that resiliency, especially in a time where we're faced with not only um, the compounding impacts of a pandemic, but also um, as we're experiencing right now um, with what's happening in the world around police violence, there is this pull, I think, between um, how we show up with strength, um, but to do that in a way that really holds true to who we are um, as Indigenous peoples. So, yeah, so I think that that's, that's sort of a place to start for me that maybe I can add more on to later. Yeah, so I think um, when I think of the word resilient, um, I, I often think about how it's not just an individual experience. It's very much grounded in our families and our communities. Um, and, and I think from like a Western perspective, resilience is always framed as like an individual's ability to like have emotional strength and all of those things. But it's like, we're social, we're social people um, and connection is so important. I don't always wanna frame indigenous peoples as resilient, much like Cindy Blackstock, who she says, um, she doesn't wanna frame First Nations as like a people who are healing because then it's always about the, like, the things that we're dealing with and what has happened to us versus like all of the beautiful strengths that we have. And like, that's not me saying that resilience is a bad thing, but it's just like how we, how we frame things and the language that we use is that we're not overcoming, well, we are overcoming things, um, but we, we inherited so much like strength and kindness and love and compassion um, for like everything around us. And I think that's like what really continues to ground us despite all of the things that happen that require us to be resilient, if that makes sense. Yeah, I wonder if you could share a little bit more just in that direction. If we think about the sort of exceptional circumstance that uh, this coronavirus has placed um, the whole world in, um, how do you see some of those qualities that you were mentioning coming to the fore and being displayed and being uh, used and sort of exercised to strengthen community and to kind of support uh, different initiatives? Yeah, well, I think you're seeing a lot of indigenous like youth groups. Um, I know uh, 7Gen, A7G out in Ottawa, what up? Um, they're doing a lot of amazing work of offering like language uh, classes online, still offering youth programming online. And just, you know, they were even delivering care packages to youth. Um, and that just like continues to show that it's not like work even though I'm gonna say like, it's our work. Um, it's really a responsibility and it's people taking up their roles and understanding like, this isn't just about me and my wellness. That if if my relations aren't okay, then like I'm not okay. And I wanna make sure that everyone is thriving as best as they can and not just surviving. Yeah, I, I will um, kind of add to what Carrington has mentioned, which is that you know, for me, it's been fascinating to watch this pandemic play out and people be extremely challenged by their uh, restrictions, by restrictions placed on movement, gatherings. And we get a choice in what we do with this time and what we've done with this time. You know, your life is a C between B and D. There's your birth and then there's your death and then there's the C in the middle of that. And that C is your choices. 
meaning that you have a choice in everything that you do to an extent. Mind you, remember what I said about, about the, the restrictions that were placed on it? But right now, we actually do have a choice on how we utilize this time. And of course, I always say, or I, I like to, I'd like to add to that C, uh, not only choice, but C is also ceremony, meaning we can use this time as a spiritual growth time. Yeah, for me, this pandemic is an, uh, a reorient, reorienting myself to myself. Um, and the, the blessings that come with being grounded, literally, because I'm someone who flies like every two weeks or more, is, is that, you know, I'm remembering what it's like to like transition seasons and to be there um, for these like critical moments in my community where we just actually have to stop what we're doing and go harvest something. Um, and so the amount of personal growth I think that's happening, at least for me um, and also folks that I see around me, uh, is really, really beautiful because I see that as me building my resilience. Yeah, I think this is a time where, I mean, one thing we could say is that people from all sort of walks of life are being shaken into rethinking their social arrangement, the social structures, the fundamental concepts that inform those structures. Um, you know, even if they're not using that language, they're having the same sort of questions about the pattern of life that they were engaged in before. And, uh, you know, in the face of such a stark change for some about what, uh, you know, what it is that they're engaged with on a daily basis. So, um, I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit more about uh, what are what do you think some of the fundamental concepts are that it would be beneficial for people to explore. So we've already mentioned some of these different things about the relationship to the land, our relationship to family, these kind of relationships that we're that we're developing, uh, all of these essential relationships in our in our lives, including this uh, this th uh, relationship to our own spiritual life and and how that affects us uh, on a daily basis. I didn't know if there were other concepts you wanted to share um, related to this time that seem pertinent for us. We can share with our listeners. This is a quote from um, Anishinaabe scholar and writer Leanne Simpson. Um, and Leanne writes in, in her book, Dancing on Our Turtle's Back, in essence, we need to not just figure out who we are. We need to reestablish the processes by which we live who we are within the current context we find ourselves. And so to me, that's what I think that is happening to me in some ways. Um, and th this book of Leanne's is like quite a few years old now, but there's so much lessons in there because, again, these lessons come from her understanding of an Anishinaabe worldview. Um, and so these lessons have always been there for us in these times. It's about finding the ways to remember them um, and then to bring them into sort of like our life in the context that we're living yeah, just to add to that too, Jess, and something that I've seen consistently in the media is this focus on immunocompromised individuals and coronavirus being specifically uh, deadly to, to you know, these populations. And uh, when I look around my own community, I see an incredibly high prevalence of diabetes, obesity, uh, high, blood, high blood, uh, blood diseases. A lot of people have passed away, the men especially from heart attacks. In, in their 40s and 50s. To me, that's young. That is a young age to be passing away from something uh, related to your chande, your heart. Of course, all of those are related to stress. And, and, and so one of the biggest 
teachings and leaning into's for me is so if the uh, issue is about having your immune system be healthy you know how do i make a healthy immune system how, how do i make sure my body my mind uh, everything is functioning is functioning optimally if you're making sure i drink enough water you know, making sure I did my meditations and breath work. And I, and I say this as a dad, because as a father, where do I get my energy from to be there for my kids, to be present when I've been doing a full day's work? And I want to make sure that I'm actually able to engage fully with my children, to be able to teach them our language, our culture, uh, to be able to show them and reverse the effects of intergenerational trauma to show them what that work looks like, I need to be centered. And I found the best way to do that is through breathing. Uh, we have this innate healing capacity within ourselves that is able to be accessed, that I think uh, our culture knew as Indigenous peoples or people were highly in tune with that. And I think that still exists within our language and our ceremonies if we're willing to put in the time and the effort to practice them on a daily basis. Yeah, just before, Thomas, before we move on, I wondered if you could just elaborate a little bit, you know, that sort of spiritual growth, which we've mentioned a few times here, if you could just des describe a little bit as well, like, I mean, for you, just personally, what, what does that look like at this time? Yeah, definitely. One of them uh, would definitely be Imbudin Chiabi. Imbudin Chiabi is the practice of fasting. Imbudin Chiabi is a day of reflection. It's not a day where I just sit around and wait for the sun to go down. It's a day of service. One of the ways, one of the teachings I've been taught is that one of the greatest ways that we can be of service is to offer ourselves, to take on things like the inconvenience, the inconvenient temporary pain of hunger, of, of thirst for a greater purpose. So when we're in that state, and it very much is a sacred state, we are very intentional with our thoughts, with our actions. And at that time, it's, it's one of the things I was taught was also the preparation of food. When I'm fasting, it doesn't mean that I don't do any work. It actually means that I make breakfast, I make lunch, I make supper, and I do all of those things with intention and love poured into them for my family. I'm, I, I, uh, I, I see a lot of people that sometimes when they fast, they, you know, they just, they'll lay in bed all day. <laughs> they'll wait for the, you know, wait, wait for them when they, when they can eat. They won't take part in anything, but that's not the way it was. It was actually about being of service in that time. And, and when you're in that state, and I know this from experiences, you can feel the tiredness, you can feel the hunger, and it's an amazing time to be self-aware and understand how you respond in those situations and to retrain yourself to come from a place of compassion and understanding and empathy and ultimately a place of love. Now, I want to take us from there, this idea of, you know, orienting ourselves towards service, because I know everyone here is connected to serving their communities in in large and small ways, larger and smaller communities, vast, vast number of connections that you all have. I wondered, uh, Jess and Carrington, if you can also just share with us some some of the practical things that you've seen um, uh, in the work that you've been connected to. Also, our work has changed, but what are what are some of those initiatives that you see as being exemplary or promising or sort of helping us see um, the application of the kind of service that we want to see happening right now? Um, well, I do. Uh, I'm one of the North American focal points for the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. And right now we have a COVID-19 initiative 
Um, specifically, I'm working more so um, with the UN Youth Envoy and my one of my e-friends. I've never met her in person. Her name is Maddie. Um, and we're working on coordinating like blogs. Um, but really, the COVID-19 initiative is a partnership with Harvard University medical students and other Indigenous health experts from around the world looking to work with community partners throughout the different seven regions we have on identifying like what their needs and supports are. I think that's just a really good example of young people coming together and saying like we need to continue to have these conversations and I think it's really important is that when we're using the word indigenous is that it is not specific to North America and that I love my North American Indians but we do not own the word um, and so it's really important to remember that like indigeneity is also like Africans and it's also Chinese folks, like some folks in those specific regions, right? And also in India and Pakistan and like all these countries where you wouldn't associate them with being indigenous, they are indigenous. Um, and that it's important to like challenge our conceptions of what indigeneity is and that we have so much similarities and we do differences um, when we actually like sit down and talk with people. Um, and I think some of our like indigenous relations are scared of that. Um, and there is a lot of othering that takes place sometimes. But like, once again, we have so much in common than we do with our differences. And it's mind blowing. Um, I've had the privilege to go with like Jess and other folks to the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. And when they do opening ceremonies and it's just different indigenous people from around the world. And you're like, oh my God, that sounds like one of our songs or that there's so much like connection there and it, it, it really is like an uplifting and amazing experience and so just that like unity alone is just really nice to know yes uh the thing that i think about um that has got me really excited about what indigenous folks have been doing right now is knowledge mobilization um, and knowledge mobilization that is really about like our communities but is is also showing through the way that we're responding to, to COVID, uh, where our values and where our priorities are too as well. Um, and so I think that, that that also is something that really can be a witness uh, by other people in other cultures, uh, uh, some of which who might be reminded that, yeah, we actually would do that too, or those are things that are more in alignment with how we would want to like organize our community, communities right now. Um, how do we sort of remind ourselves about how our communities can center our elders when the narrative that was happening globally was to say we're sacrificing our elders for the youth? Um, and for us, we were kind of standing up to say that's actually not how we want to approach this pandemic. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I think that the Indigenous community speaking out about those things reminded folks of, of those important pieces of what makes us a community in the first place. Um, and pushes back against that idea that uh, Carrington was talking about in the beginning around resilience as being an independent thing versus an interdependent uh, idea and concept um, that we like uh, actually have a responsibility to like have recipro reciprocity to to each other um, in how we build re resiliency. And uh, yeah, and I think it's also really like important for folks to be able to hear Indigenous voices talk about our own selves in this way, um, because we're often plunked into this sort of like at risk or marginalized um, label um, without unpacking the context under which we had to be there in the first place, which is the context of, of colonialism and, and all of the aftermath and 
impacts and um, I guess re- resonating traumas of of the ongoing policies that continue to to quote unquote marginalize people. Uh, and so I really hope to see some really powerful things happening that um, create some of that structural shift. And I think the project that Carrington was talking about is exactly one of those things. It's like the partnerships and the relationships that are being developed by Indigenous young people um, on their own terms with a diversity of uh, knowledges and knowledge bundles coming together. Um, is really what's going to move us beyond where we've been and where we continue to cycle um, generation after generation when it comes to rights and justice in this, in you know, what in this in this country. I want to get concretely into some of those things, like what you know, what the the vision for the future is. What are some of the qualities that that we really want to see woven into the kind of action that we're taking together? Before we do that, I know Thomas, you had something that you that you wanted to share. Some of you do that, and then we'll go on to this uh, this kind of uh, question about the future. I just wanted to to highlight that point that just made, and of course, uh, you know, at one time we were all connected, the north and the south. East and the West. And, and all of those medicines were in place. And I think we're moving toward that again, where we're part of a global community and we're more interwoven now than ever, ever before. And so we have access to more and more and more. But while we do that, we also have to nurture where we come from. We have to dig deep into there so that when we connect into that global community, we also come with something. And, and I think that that journey that uh, has brought me to that realization, my journey, uh, has a, a big part of that was my relationship with the Baha'i faith and the introduction to it. As I mentioned, I came from a small little reserve in, in Alberta um, to an, and, and went to an international Baha'i school. And, and Alberta, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is, is not a friendly face or not a friendly place for Indigenous peoples. The, the dialogue, the, the belief system, like the way I was treated when I was growing up was that I was an Indian. And that Indian people, we, were, we sat in a different part of the restaurant. We were treated differently by the banks, by the courts. Uh, everywhere we went, the stores, we were treated less than. And so that was what my understanding was of the outside world. In going to an international school, I saw that what, where I came from, was unique. My language was unique and when everyone around the world was proud of their language that was different, proud of the way they talked, proud of what they could bring to that international gathering, it, it allowed me to see beyond the small scope of small provincial towns and small provincial people, small provincial mindsets, including the reserve mindset. And, and so in, in being part of that global community I was able to draw deep within myself and see what initially had been something that had been chastised and made fun of as actually the greatest strength that I had, the, meal, the most beautiful gift that I had ever been given. And, and that, of course, that realization came through a lot of pain and suffering. But in the end, it, it ultimately was the greatest gift. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, Carrington, I wondered if you wanted to just share your, you know, your thoughts about this kind of the coronavirus you were saying before you know it's not going back to normal so where do you think it's going i think that's something that folks who had may never were 
weren't mindful before of their actions and the, the implications it could have on other people's well-being are now being forced to have to think about those things. I think, I think it's challenging a lot of like Western standards of productivity and like workplaces and what working should look like. And Jess, where do you think this is taking us? Or where should we go from here? For me, the future is really about taking care of our relatives and our relationships. Um, it's like there's things that we're doing now that we could have been doing all along. And so what is it that has sort of shifted us to a place of really putting intention into people that we can hold on to and carry forward? Um, and the other thing that I think is really exciting is, is like how, I mean, the hypocrisies of like the rules that are in place from government, from uh, foundations, from regulatory bodies that seek to control people, how re like actually fake they are. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm just like reveling in how, how much um, things that were said to be impossible are actually possible. And so I hope that we continue to act to like hold on to that idea of um, your no is actually a power move. Uh, and what is possible is a yes with a conversation. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we will be able to create more opportunities for yeses to happen, um, especially when it comes to community driven solutions to the quote unquote issues um, that that we're we're constantly dealing with in our communities um, beyond COVID. So I think that that's kind of fun. And it's also cheeky to be able to kind of then track some of these things and bring them back up again when people try to like put the rules back in place to sort of say, why is it that that was easy for you to do and to make sort of like concessions around back then? Can we not do that now? Um, in particular in how wealth and resources are distributed back to community. So that's what I kind of hope for in the future, I think. Um, and then to continue to be able to just connect back into the land. I'm really grateful for that. Um, I, 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 live a, I live in a really like blessed place to have that access. Uh, and I see it as a responsibility, uh, just like any kind of privilege that you have. So that's me. I never know how to end a point. Like I'm like, yeah, and then there it is, I guess. And <laughs> that's all I have to say. And it's very helpful. Thank you all for, for sharing your thoughts with us today and just having a chance to explore some of these themes, especially around the reconsideration of all kinds of relationships that we have with family members, with the land that we live on, with the economic systems and other kinds of social systems that we interact with. And this very also personal, uh, reflective idea about how we deal with the relationship with ourselves in this kind of a, a trying a trying time and with our community thank you so much for all the insights that you shared you have been listening to the public discourse a podcast by the baha'i community of canada's office of public affairs you can learn more about the baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at oba.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.